back to Nostalgic Radio and Cars with me, your host, Robert. So sit back, buckle up, and enjoy the ride. That's a good old song there. That's uh, Eric Clapton, Crossroads, when he was uh, with the group Cream. I've got a uh, very special visitor with us tonight. He's from England, and uh, he's going to be talking about some foreign cars, some vintage racing, and uh, this should be a pretty good show because we've got a a European theme this evening. So, uh, guys... Okay. I'd like to introduce our guest tonight, and uh, John, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you, bro. And, and uh, we're glad to have you here. And why don't you tell us a little bit about your uh, your automotive background? Start out with uh, how you got hooked. That was an interesting story. You told us that earlier. Okay. Uh, yes, I wasn't really interested in cars at all until I was about 18 years old. My dad had some nice cars, but they were just things with four wheels that took you around. So when I was 18, I was at a pub in England with a friend of mine, Alan Goodall, friend to this day. And there was a black 1958 Ferrari Tour de France 250 GT Berlinetta sitting outside. So we went into the pub after admiring it, and my friend Alan shouted out, Who owns the Ferrari out there? And this guy stuck his hand up. 
and he was, to our utter astonishment, only about 27 years old. I mean, obviously, if you own a car like that, you should be very rich and very old, but he wasn't. Anyway, we got talking to him, and Alan said, give us a ride in the Ferrari. So he said, okay. So he and uh, Alan and Paul Kay got into the Ferrari and drove off, and with just two seats, I was left out. However, Alan had a Ford Thames van. So I followed on in the Thames van, swiftly left behind in the dust of this departing Ferrari, of course, and then I ran out of gas. So I'm standing by the side of the road wondering what to do, and the Ferrari came back looking for me. And Paul Kay, well, he was a drinker, and he carried around his own pint mug for the beer. So he pulled the pint mug out, and to our utter astonishment, he flipped open this huge Monza filler cap and actually managed to get the whole of the pint pot into the fuel tank and come out with enough gas to stick in the Ford Thames to get us back to the pub. Amazing. It was good. And then he gave me a ride home, about 12 miles, I should think, and that changed my life. So you were hooked on cars from that point on? From that point on, I couldn't stop talking about them. So tell us a little bit about how you, the little story about that car. Okay, yep. Uh, when I got this, would, that would have been about 1962, 63. How did, excuse me, yeah. how did that Ferrari <laughs> earn the name Tour de France? Was it basically a 250 GT? Is that what it was? It was a 250 GT Berlinetta, and they were named, those cars were named after the fact that Ferrari won, I think it was five or six consecutive victories on the Tour de France event, which was a very grueling five-day affair, which took you, through a road section, then a race, then a road section, then a race. So the cars were pretty much uh, done by the time they were finished. And, and that was that. Those are touring cars, so that's not a full-blown race car. That's a street car, basically. They, yes, they were. They were. They were basically a dual-purpose vehicle, a, a sports car, but also something that could be raced as well. So they became very strong. Okay. And that, that's how they did it. And as history would have it. Oh, uh, yeah. So, okay. So the thing I remembered about this car was that uh, Paul Kay, the man who then owned it in 1962, said that it won the Mille Miglia in 1958. So I started borrowing things. And I found out that the chassis number of this car, the VIN, was 0911 GT. So I followed what happened to it. And in 1979, I found that it was in America and it was in California and it belonged to... Uh, Gene Autry's son, Dennis Autry, the cowboy guy. The singer. Yeah. Mooster. And so, um, by great good fortune, I bought it back. And uh, I had to go to the bank manager. I was telling Robert this earlier. I had to go to the bank manager to borrow £10,000 <clears> for the price. And the bank manager refused me. So... Uh, I got down on my knees and I begged him for the money and he lent it to me. So all you aspiring people out there, when the bank manager says no, don't take no for an answer. Just get on your knees and beg. Sell yourself why you need this. <laughs> Sell him that it's an appreciable asset. That's just something that you got to have. Okay, well, It was. <laughs> Been there, done that. Yeah, I'm sure um, you have. Okay, we have another guest with us, too. Alan, Alan's sitting in a little bit. Alan, you want to ask uh, John some questions? Anything on the Ferrari? Yeah. Well, how many Ferraris have you had? Um, of course, the, the 250 is probably the most prominent one because that was Ferrari's pinnacle anyway, 250s. I, I, top of my head, I think seven or eight. Oh, yeah? Yes. Mostly all 60s? Wow. Uh, I, had yeah. a, I had a Daytona. Uh, yeah. I had a couple, yeah, mainly, mostly 60s and late 50s. I had uh, a couple of those uh, Pininfarina Coupes, 250 GT Pininfarina Coupes, and I had a 330 GTC. Then I got the Daytona 365 GT, GTB4, weren't they? That's yeah. right, yeah. Um, oh, and I had, a, I had a 308 GT4. That was a... Mm, Yes, that was an interesting device. Um, <laughs> device. <laughs> Sounds like a tool. It kept going on to, it was a V8, and it kept going on to four cylinders after you'd driven it for 20 miles. Well, that wasn't exactly their uh <laughs> Which was your favorite car. to drive? Uh, well, the Tour de France above all, but actually yeah. the Daytona ran it a close second. 
Yeah, because those would go 170 plus if you had it, the highway it, it, for it. It was fast. Yeah. It was fast. Yeah, I was. Okay, stop. What, what year was yeah. the uh, the Daytona that you had? Nineteen, I think it was a seventy seventy one. It was Euro version. Euro. Yeah. In fact, Alan and I had a discussion the other day. We were talking about where the name Daytona came about the other right. day, and I was always under the impression that it was used for marketing purposes for the United States. But then Alan clued me in, saying because the car, pre, I guess, debuted at Daytona, debuted at Daytona, that uh, that was one of the reasons why. It, it was, I guess, is it nicknamed? Is that That's what? his nickname, yeah. Ferrari never called it a Daytona. Never it was did. a 365 GT4, yeah. right? Yeah. I always heard the story that it was named because that the year the Daytona was introduced, Ferrari had won the Daytona Continental or 24 hours with three P4s. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. That would have been... That was about 60... The 66, 65, 66? Is that what the P4 that the was, P4. Well, oh, that was the God, real cool-looking one. one. Yeah, I know what you're yeah, talking so about. Yeah, so that was earlier, that. wasn't it? Yeah, okay. but they, they, when the car, the Daytona Coupe, raced at Daytona and won, and they said, hey, it's a Daytona. That's it's a Daytona. That's, it's just like a Ferrari never called it that, so... But everyone else did. <laughs> so when did yeah. when so you broke in the when did, so you, when did you break into racing? When when did that become um, like your passion? God, I, I must have been about uh, that must have been in the seventies, and I'd, I I had a f- uh, several XK one twenty Jaguars, which I liked very much, and so I took one to Mallory Park in England and raced it, and I was last. That you're hooked again. So, <laughs> but I was the first, hooked. Yeah. The first trips in the Ferrari 250 GT Tour de France, I hooked you on cars, and then <laughs> yeah. the, the Jaguar got you hooked on racing. Absolutely. Yeah. Really how cool. how were the cars prepared then? In other words, well, that was amateur racing, I <laughs> What preparation? What preparation? <laughs> you, you had seatbelts? And, and a helmet? No. And that was it. No seatbelts. There were no seatbelts in the Jag. I remember that. That's, okay. Well, that sounds like back in the old days when they used to race SECA. Remember Carol Shelby used to tell yeah. us the stories? Seatbelts? Hell, seatbelts. We didn't use seatbelts. Safety equipment? What's that? <laughs> Phil, as fast as you could. <laughs> Phil will drive a Ferrari down from New Jersey to Sebring, run the 12-hour race, take the tape back off the headlights, and drive it back home. Mm. There you go. That's what yeah. racing's all about. Because really, if you think about it, and it's infinite. It was all really just street prepared cars or were slightly modified. You know, they might have changed tires, did something with the brakes and a few things like that to, so the cars could run road courses. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that Tour de France I was talking about, I raced that all across Europe. And yes, we put a four point harness in it, but that was it. It didn't even have a roll cage. Now, that car you said had raced at Mille Mille. Did yeah. you participate in the Mille Mille race? I did the reruns in 80, 82, and 84. So the reruns are like, say, modern day versions of it, yes. a little bit more docile. A lot more docile, uh, but there were stretches when you really could go flat out. And uh, I, I, have, I remember vividly the first one. Um, the last stretch was from uh, Cremona back to Brescia, which was uh, 78 miles. And it was on a Saturday afternoon, and it was a two-lane road. So all the Italians were out doing their shopping. And <laughs> I can remember that I came out of the last control behind... Uh, I can't remember his name now, it begins with a C, but at that time he was Italian historic racing champion and he got his 14-year-old daughter in the car. It was another Tour de France. Mm-hmm. And he just took to the centre of the road and I followed him. And at one point I can remember seeing over 7,000 in fourth, which was over 140 mile an hour. And I was sitting there thinking, if this goes wrong, this accident is going to go on for a long time. <laughs> now the, the Mille Mille, for, how would you, it's for our listeners that are not familiar with okay, that. Okay, it was a, the Mille Mille in its heyday was a thousand mile race from mm. and it was a flat out race from uh, Brescia near Milan down to Rome 500 miles down the Adriatic and then back up the other side to uh, to Brescia and I think the fastest it was ever run at was in 1955 when Sterling Moss drove a Mercedes SLR 300 oh, uh, SLR and car. he averaged I believe 100 miles an hour on the open road for a thousand miles to now, win. That was probably back before the days of the Autostrada, right? When they were running that. Now, are you on the Autostrada yes. at all, or no, is it all country it's roads? All, it's all road. It's all old main roads, two lane roads, two little villages and yep, stuff like that. Yep, and you got to go over the Futa Pass and the Raticosa Pass as well, which are hairpins every hundred yards, as it were. And then the rerun is basically that same. It's it's over road the same course. route. Yeah, okay, it's over same the route. same route. But they they calm you down. They try and take you in convoy, and the police are forever escorting you. Think and then. Also on the on that on that run the Mille Mille, is it there? You have to, the cars can't be 
beyond a certain year, right? So are they? That's right. They've got to run from 1927 to 1957. Okay, That's so when the race so, Okay, because I believe, if I understand correctly, the last year that the Mille Mille officially ran was 57. Was 50, so the yeah. cars have to be 57 and earlier. That's right. The okay. car that I had was a 58, and in 58 and 59, they actually tried to do a sort of uh, a rally affair and called it the Mille Mille, but it was a shadow of its former self, really. That's great. Hey, Lee, what do you got queued up for us next? we got House of the Rising Sun by The Animals. Okay. Uh, you know what? Let's play that song, and then you can tell us an interesting story about House of the Rising Sun. You told me that mm-hmm. earlier, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That that song's uh, kind of uh, personal to you a little bit, isn't it, though, John? You... Yes. Um, when I was in my early 20s, telling Robert that uh, myself and a friend, Bob Hill, who's a friend to this day, we got drunk in a pub one night and uh, we were watching some pretty awful band and we decided that we could do this whole thing a lot better. So we started a club in a place called The Navigation at Wooten Bowen. Uh, which is about 12 miles outside Birmingham. And in those days, if you put a band on, you could pack the place out. And this was leading up to and past the Beatles' time. Oh, I played with them as well, by the way. Did you? I did, yes. I was in a band and I played support. Oh, that's right. You're a musician as well, aren't you? Uh, Well, a bit, yes. Guitar? Still a bit, yes. Okay, Mm -hmm. cool. So uh, getting back to this, so um, one of the bands we had on was The Animals, and um, they said that night we... Started, you know, this is the first time we've played this song. We hope it'll go over okay. And, of course, it went down a storm. And a bit, a bit later, it was number one in the charts, and off they went. So. How, how established were the animals back then? And this is like 62, um, 63, something? They were, they were uh, how established were they? I think they'd had a couple of other songs out, and they, they'd hovered around the top 30, but never actually broken into it before the House of the Rising Sun. I think that's right. Now, hey, Lee. Um, it's a long time ago. House of the Rising Sun, wasn't that? That's a, an old blues song, isn't it? 
I think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, do you know John? Is that? Yeah, I do know that it's an old blues song, and um, Bob Dylan did a version of it on his very first album, didn't they? Uh, yeah, that's right. He did he do did. a version of he it. Did. Yeah, so it's but a, still, by far, the Animals has probably got yeah. the best version out there. And so, yep. so tell us about some of the other cars that you. I, you know, I know you're a Porsche fan. And of course, yep. I'm wearing a Porsche shirt today because I'm a 356 <laughs> Porsche f- nut, and I've owned numerous 911s. I knew three, somebody must have bought one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, the old tubs. Well, um, I, do you know? Uh, I didn't drive a. I didn't drive a Porsche until really quite late on, probably in the sort of mid thirties. And then a friend of mine was selling one and asked me if I was interested. And I'd always regarded them with scorn as sort of um, a souped-up Volkswagen. So I climbed in this thing, and within a hundred yards, I was totally hooked. I knew this was a great car. And which model was this? That was a 911 SC, I remember. Oh, really? So yeah. that would be like 78 or newer? That, the, that was 76, 77, something 78 like was yeah. the first year for 78. SC. Okay, yeah. it was a 78, yeah. That was a three-liter car. It was a three-liter car, and I remember it had that, um, it had that Tiptronic. No, it wouldn't have been. Yeah. Oh, you know what it might have had? You might have Go had on. that a one-off oddball Sportomatic. 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 You've got it. That's it. <laughs> it had a Sportomatic gearbox, which... <laughs> which didn't think it was too bad to begin with, but after a bit I didn't like it, so I had it swapped over for a clutch and a manual gearbox. Well, if you're used to a handshaker, it's kind of hard to sit there and just go <laughs> put it in one yes, position a, and think that that's going to work. The trouble was, every time you went around the corner and your knee clonked the gear lever, it probably changed gear. And it was like, hang on a second. <laughs> Porsche is actually a Latin word for Nazi slot car. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, on that note, so what other Porsches did you have? <laughs> oh, God, what are the ones that Did you race the, um, the Porsches, too, I've then? I've raced right? a lot of Porsches, yes. I've raced uh, RS, RSR, 934, 935. Um, yes, I've driven a 962, but I've never raced one. Uh, but love RSRs. Yeah. So this is in vintage racing? This is in vintage racing. And why don't you tell right. our listeners a little bit about the, the various organizations okay. and vintage racing that you participated in? Okay. Um, well, of course, there's uh, HSR, Historic Sports Car Racing, over on this coast and on the west coast, actually, as well. And there's SVRA, Sports Car and Vintage. Sports Vintage Racing Association, okay. right. They're quite similar, except that HSR does a sort of run what you brung. Uh, they have a wide... Their categories are very wide to allow a lot of people to take part. And, and the cars are a little bit more modified, aren't cars they? Cars are modified, and it's 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 pretty good racing. It's very good racing. And then you've got the SVRA, which is a little bit more... Uh, reserved. Reserved, mm-hmm. yes. Yes, that's right. So you've got to have a proper car before you can Yeah, because I believe SVRA requires that the cars... Well, in the old days, when I say old days, I'm going back, you know, maybe 10 years or so, the cars had to be prior to 1972... With proper documentation and logbooks to verify that the car had legitimate history. racing history. Right. And then the way it used to be is gentlemen racing. Yeah. You know, and, and I remember at the driver's meetings, they used to say, um, uh, Ken Pendergrass used to say that, or Joe, uh, you would say, listen, guys, uh, history has already been made. We know who won. We know what year. We know the <laughs> stats. So go out there, no swapping paint, no rubbing fenders, you know. And, uh, of course, that's how HSR basically evolved is because the, the SVRA guys wanted to keep their cars clean, pure. pristine, and pure. Mm. And you could only go 60 over on the board. The engines were P&G, so, you know, they were checking compressions and displacements and stuff like that. You could update safety equipment. That was the only thing we could do is brakes and seatbelts, safety equipment, stuff like that. You know, roll cages if you had to bring them up to specs and stuff because those were all checked. Mm. And then what happened is is a lot of guys would show up with a little bit more slightly modified cars. <laughs> and then uh, hence HSR was formed in the mid-'80s. And, of course, you remember Joe, and that was his thing. And then it evolved into a huge sport. So more activity, more people would participate into that. So HSR allowed not only the cars that were pure, legit, pre-72 race cars, but basically a clone or a copy or a highly modified version of that car. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, Joe Pendergast was a good guy, but I think I think the guys who ran HSR must have been pretty surprised at how well it took off. Cause, it I mean, did very well, <laughs> and it was one of the foremost venues. In fact, it was rivaled on the East Coast. 
I, or on I, West Coast, excuse me. Yeah, I mean, sort of. I've been to Watkins Glen when they've had over 350 entries in in, in HSR, and Sebring is always a popular place. And uh, mind you, I can at <laughs> Sebring, um, John Bishop, the man who started IMSA, told me once that you could put a tea party on at IMSA, at Sebring and get 5,000 people. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, now, it's, it's true. Sebring is the oldest or one of the oldest road courses in the United States, correct? Yes, absolutely. 1950, wasn't it? It started it, off. 48, I think they had one race and officially 51 or something like that. Right. 53 was the first year for the 12-hour race. In, in fact, in fact it was actually, it's a Baron Collier Memorial. That's right. That's uh, right. Yeah. Now, this man knows his stuff, folks. Yeah, well, that's Don't right. argue he's with he's, him. He's the, uh, he's the historian I, guru. I do, I do have to say, plug here, Sebring. I don't understand why we don't have a classic Sebring 12-hour race like the classic Le Mans 24-hour race. I mean, I just think it would be a raving success. Well, now they do that in Europe, correct? They do, yes. I've, I've done Classic Le Mans, and I'm going back there in a couple of weeks. So what, and, at Le Mans? Yeah, they have. They had, last two years ago, they run it every two years, they had 82,000 paying spectators. Can you imagine what you might have at Sebring if you actually put on a Classic Sebring 12 hours? I think you'd have an unbelievable turnout. So do I. And I've tried to sell it, and no one's interested. You know what's interesting is... Um, and, I, and, and, and having lived in Europe, and obviously you're European as well, the European motorsports is the number one spectator sport in Europe. And outside of does maybe beat, soccer. Does it beat, I was about to say. I, well, yeah, it's close. It's a toss-up. But, I mean, <laughs> right. you know, and, and of course, you'd hate to get a bunch of soccer guys and car guys in the same room because <laughs> we carry wrenches. Um, <laughs> but at any rate. Footballs, uh, footballs don't work. Uh, yeah, they, don't, they bounce. They're soft. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you get a 22-millimeter upside the head, you know, that <laughs> might change your opinion real quick. Depends but, what it is in SAE. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> okay. At any rate, um, but motorsports, now NASCAR is huge in the United States. Yeah. Supposedly in the United States, it's the number one spectator sport. Right. But road racing just does not no. get the attention, nor the notoriety, nor the advertising. And I, I never really understood that. I mean, road racing in Formula One is huge in Europe, yeah. okay, especially F1. F1 yeah. is like, that's the holy grail of, yeah. of motorsports in Europe. And then, in, you know, and then, of course, Le Mans, which is basically your sedan cars and your GTP cars and your, uh, your uh, GT car. sports racing. Yeah, stuff. sports yeah. racing. But in the United States, um, it's just it's anemic, yeah. and it's unfortunate. I well, think I know why. Why? I, well, I think if you take any of the really successful racing stuff in America, you can see the whole circuit from one place because they're ovals. But with road racing, you can't see the whole circuit from one corner. That's true. I think that's got a lot to do with it. But would you say, now you were here in the 70s. Okay, no, then. I didn't. Co- well, I was. I came here in 1978 for the very first time. Okay, but from your perspective, yeah. I mean, I would say um, road racing, and Alan, you can help out here. Yeah. Um, we had a lot of foreign cars back in the 50s, 60s, and yep. early 70s. Yep. Okay, so yep. a lot of those cars wound up on the tracks. You know, your Heelys, right, your MGs, yeah. your Triumph, your yep. Jags, Porsches, yep. and so yeah. on, Alphas. Watkins, Glenn, and all that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. road racing probably was pretty popular back in the day because I'm amazed at how many people I run into remember all the old SCCA events because SCCA was huge. Yep. And now that we don't see these cars as much anymore, and it's become a very, very expensive sport, you know, it's all about yep. advertising dollars and stuff like that, um, it just doesn't seem to, uh, th- th- you know, a guy in the old days could see a TR6 or a GT2R250 uh, or, or an MGB or a Healy, big yep. Healy, going down the road, he could identify with that car immediately. He says, yep. oh, yeah, that's the same car they race. Today, you don't see those cars like we used to, so hence we don't think of them in terms of th- that's, that's, that's a track car or a potential race car. I think that's absolutely right, and uh, because things like GTP cars are guided missiles from another planet, aren't they, compared to a street car? Well, you mentioned you'd driven a 962. Yes, and I mean nothing like a, anything you'd drive on the, on the street at all. Maybe, I mean, there's been BMW, uh, there's been sedan racing, haven't there, for quite a long time on mm-hmm. road courses over here. But that, as you say, that's never caught on in the same way that NASCAR has. No. Well, NASCAR, way back in the day, win on Sunday, sell on Monday. Yeah. Now, yeah. unfortunately, though, NASCAR now, the cars look alike, and it's sort of like motorized wrestling, you know. It's <laughs> <laughs> hey, Lee, what do you got queued up for us? Anything interesting? This is a really good song, which you picked, of course, Dear Mr. Fantasy by Traffic. Oh, okay. Cool. Great. 
Okay, that was another interesting one. Now, John, you got a story about uh, traffic, or actually Steve Winwood, right? It was Stevie Winwood, yeah. When he was 14, he was in the Spencer Davis group, and they used to play at the Eagle on Hill Street in Birmingham, and we used to go along every Thursday and watch it. And I just thought it was amazing. He had this 14-year-old kid, and that voice came out of him. I mean, it's, it's not real, is it? That's uh, yeah, it truly is. I mean, he's very talented. You know what? You're you're just a tremendous wealth of information here. I mean, you were involved with the rock scene back in the '60s. I was very a race lucky. car guy. Yeah, I was just very lucky. weren't you involved in entertainment too for a while? Tell yeah. us a little bit about that. I used to be in a rock band and several rock bands really, but um, and from when I was about 14 through to when I was about 20. And at one point, we uh, well, twice actually, we backed the Beatles when they were on their climb to fame at the, uh, the Ritz in King's Heath and the Old Hill Plaza. I remember it well. No kidding. And when the Beatles came on and the screaming started, you suddenly realized they were going to be very famous indeed. So you saw the Beatles at the very end? Uh, very, uh, beginning. Like, beginning too, really? Shared the dressing room. Mm-hmm. I won't tell you what Paul McCartney said to me. That would be... Um, <laughs> Well now, come on, come uh, on tell us. We want yeah. to this. I also understand now. I dance. Hey, well, um, can, you, can you clean it up a little bit? <laughs> there were rumors. There were rumors. I know these, these guys used to get crazy in the dressing actually, room. Actually, what he said, what, what he said as he went on, as he brushed past me, he said, uh, oh, "We've just, we've just watched you lot." I said, "Oh, really?" Thinking he was going to say something like, "We were very impressed." He said, "Yeah, you were crap." oh that's rough now evidently uh you have uh uh, music runs in your family right oh music runs in my family yes it does indeed you have a little feature Um, for us this evening right lee do you think you could cure up that cd queue up this is okay this is this is proud dad bits. My do- my youngest daughter plays guitar and is a singer-songwriter, as is everybody else in Britain, because they are all on the dole. But anyway, she's uh, she does all right, and uh, she's written all her own songs, and this is one of them called Landlocked. Okay, we got it ready. Just this land, locked girl, 
You, you should be very proud of her. She's got a very good voice. Yeah, I am proud of her. How she's do you? Good. So she's got this actual CD out now. Yeah, she's got a CD out in England, and she does the usual: goes around playing the clubs and hosts a come all ye, as it were, for singers to get up and just have a go. And we need to hook her up with uh, Brian Johnson, ACDC. Yeah. He's always looking for talent. He's right here in Sarasota. Uh, I know Brian. Yeah, he's yeah. in our racing club. Yeah, he's a he's a lovely man. I'm very impressed with Brian. Mm-hmm. So many stars can be so aloof and so forth and brian is just a a yeah. real regular guy yeah if you're standing there talking he'll say here grab a hot dog and have uh, a beer yep. and and yep. hang out yeah yep. he's a good racer too very good racer. and his he wife races. brenda races as and, well and brenda races a, a healy sprite Five guys Sprite. there you go yeah. alan the only one the race <laughs> <laughs> well now he was driving what was he he was racing he had a four Ford cortina for a while and a volvo remember he had the volvo he or did he, he did, and he's also he's got a pill beam now as well. I don't know if you've seen that. A what? A pill beam. What's that? Uh, it's a British sports racer. Oh, oh, okay, like a little open, like a little mini Can-Am car? Uh, yes. That's okay. fair. Lots of carbon fiber and ferociously fast and noisy. Now, you also deal in cars, too. You buy and sell vintage race cars, so tell us I a little bit about that. I, I broker them. Oh, you broker um, them, okay. I broker them, yes. Uh, somehow I got into this game of, um, well, actually what I got into was I got into, I was so interested in the cars, I started writing books about them, and that led on to people phoning me up and saying, can you sell my Porsche 962, my Porsche RSR, my Lola T70, and so forth. And and uh, somehow, by a happy accident, I appear to be able to survive in this world by carrying out this strange life. Well, I'm sure you meet a lot of interesting people, and you, do you do you ever yeah. you, you happen on? I'm sure a lot of really cool car collections. Uh, yes. I, I'm somewhat astonished, really. Why should I be? I don't know. But there's some amazing stuff in St. Petersburg. Really, I've been really surprised by some of the stuff that's hidden away. Just the private collectors just keep yeah. a real low profile. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you, you'll find it. I, I've, I've run into that myself a few times. You know, they say, well, look, I don't mind you seeing my collection, yeah. but I want to rena- remain anonymous. Yep. And I don't want anybody talking about it. You can say that you saw XYZ car, mm. you know, a, a, you know, Lola T70 or an AC Cobra or, you know, a Chaparral or something like that it might be buried here or some indie cars, which yep. we know of in town. Yep. And um, we've been but, to the same place. <laughs> right. But we don't want anybody to know about it because yep. the people don't want publicity. You know, yep. they're just private collectors and that's for their own personal enjoyment, which is understandable. The most astonishing collection I've ever visited was actually down in, uh, was in Texas. And, um, I was just a, a, the guy had got. You went into. He got this big rambling, sprawling ranch place, and you drove in through the driveway, and in front of his hacienda, as it were, he had. The first time I went was about ten years ago, I suppose. He had forty, quite desirable cars. Forty as in four zero. Four zero, mm-hmm. yeah, with tarpaulins thrown over them, where they'd been standing for years. And amongst them, there was a. I remember there was an Interscope Porsche 935. Did it say double O on it by any chance? Yes. One on Gaius's cars? Yes. There was there was a a, a Lola T600. But the and he got that was sort of you know what he called his crap stuff. And then he'd take you into his garage and you'd be going, well, there's a Duesenberg, and here's two more Lola T70s, and and there's the Lola T600 that won the IMSA Championship in 1981. It's like, oh my God, but he never he never runs them. I just I can't understand that mentality. I just can't. It, um, it, when you see these cars, do you? Um, <clears throat> What do you encourage them to do? Do you encourage them to drive them to yep. either restore them or put them back at least in race configuration? Or what's what's the most popular way to trade those cars, if you want to use the term trade, you know, buy, sell, trade? Um, hmm. You know something? I, 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 never say to, I, I never say to people, do you want to sell your car? Because I think that's the fastest way to put people off. Mm-hmm. But just, you know, yes, just genuinely encourage people to, you know, that's a beautiful car. Why don't you put it back together and why don't you get it out and why don't you race it? Or, or if it's not a race car, why don't you show it? Why don't you drive it down the street? Something like, you know, it just breaks my heart to see really beautiful cars that are in pieces. And you know the guy's never going to put them back together again. You must have come across that. Oh, yeah, a lot of them. I mean, it's funny you mentioned the Lola because I was in Orlando in the 80, in the 70s and I was in the guy's garage. He had a GT40. 
He had a Lola two, two Lola 270s. Okay, I will never forget them. They were sitting there, and he had a, uh, so he had a GT40, two, G, two, two Lolas, and there was like a uh, open Can-Am looking kind of car there. I don't remember right. what that was. And, uh, of course, I've always been on this quest for AC Cobras. That's, right. my, that's the car that I'm most passionate about. And uh, oh, when I, I had them, I, I could have bought the car for you, my boy. Yeah. Got it to me today. <laughs> <laughs> but they were always out of my price range, or I thought I could get one cheaper. And you know how that is. And then you put it off, and you put it off, and now they're they're unobtainable. Yeah. But um, getting into these cars a little bit, now you do some exporting, and I know that yep. some of the cars go overseas, and there were some issues that you had there you wanted to mention? Yeah, I just find it. This is what I find quite staggering. If you import a car into America, you will pay an import. It doesn't matter what car it is. Mm -hmm. You will pay an import duty of between 2.5 and 2.8%. But if you import a car into Europe, it's going to cost you 30% in import duties. And if you try and import a car into Australia, it's going to cost you 46%. Now, I don't know what the import duties into other countries are but it does seem to me that dear old america is sort of stabbing itself in the back quite happily by going down this road i mean why should we allow all these other makes of cars into the country when our own homegrown industry is grinding to a halt i don't get it uh, you know uh, now you're talking about whether it's new cars and old cars yes makes new just... cars and old cars and and it just it's it's <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't get it. You know, it's, We're uh, told it's a level playing field, but it isn't. No. So in other words, what you're saying is to bring a car to the United States is a lot cheaper than the sentiment yes, overseas, and absolutely. we're missing the boat where we should be yeah. charging a little bit more on the import tariffs and duties and stuff like that. Yeah, and I, I, so. I know from experiences when I used to send cars over to Europe that – you're right. We had the VAT, the value-added tax you had import, to pay. Import duty of 10%, import, and then 175 to 19% VAT. And that's on top of your shipping costs as on well. On top of the shipping costs. As a matter of fact, what they do, because when we used to ship the cars to Bremerhaven, they would charge us to unload. <laughs> they would take a hand cart, yes. walk up to the boat, and unload it, and charge us 150 Back yep. then it was Daymarks. Yep. You know, and that's insane. Oh, to open the, to open the container doors is $100. Yeah. Like, well, come on. But no, that's what they charge, yeah. So, you know, yeah, I can understand. I mean, it's difficult. And then, of course, you know, you've always got to deal with the exchange rates. Yes. So, <laughs> you know what? Let's just say it's politics as usual. Yeah, I guess it is. That's, there you are. That's my only political But question. I think for the guy that <clears throat> buys a certain car, particularly in the, the realm of cars that you deal in, you know, the mm -hmm. more high-end exotics mm -hmm. um, and race cars, you know, at that point, you know, a few extra dollars is academic to those prospective buyers, you know. I well, I think it is to the majority of them, but of course, you you know, let's face it, I sell some stuff to classic car dealers over there, and let's face it, people want to get the cheapest deal they can, don't they? Well, yeah, and see, what it does is it takes the guy out of the low end of the market, you know, and that's what's happening overall, just in the industry in general. You know, when the cars get too expensive, um, they're basically priced, it narrows the margin down. You know, if you get a car, let's say, say hypothetically, $20,000, you got 10,000 people that could buy it. You get a yeah. car in a $100,000 bracket, <laughs> you've got... You know, maybe a thousand people that can buy it. You get a yeah. car that's a million dollars. You got six <laughs> people that can buy it, and they're going to bid against each other. Exactly. And now, do you ever go to the auctions? Now, I know you mentioned RM. Tell us about RM oh, and, okay. and Monaco. Yeah, about three weeks ago, um, RM Auctions held a held an auction in Monaco, and uh, I was very lucky because uh, a guy with a Lola T seventy um, very kindly paid for myself and my wife to fly there first class and stay in Monaco and go and help him sell the car. He didn't actually need me at all because the car sold just fine without me, but nevertheless, it was very nice. It wasn't during the Monaco Grand Prix by any chance, was it? It was, it was during the weekend of the classic, the, the vintage racing Formula okay. One thing, and we watched that on the Sunday. That was great. I had never realised, even on the television, how narrow and little the Monaco circuit is. You know, somebody, Did we talk about the actual race course? The actual race course, yeah. But anyway, um, it was astonishing because in one afternoon, RM Auctions sold $55 million worth of cars. And there was just obviously no lack of money whatsoever at the top end. So what uh, of the cars that were there, which one did you find was, you know, there was interesting? Oh, uh, I mean, unusual okay. stuff that, you know, there's stuff, the run of the mill. But let's say yeah. in the um, there was a beautiful Ferrari Tour de France, uh, the next one along for the one that I had. There was uh, there was a very nice short wheelbase there as well. Mm -hmm. um, the stuff I liked, there were a couple of beautiful pre-war Bugattis, mm. Type 57. Oh, really? Which, yeah, which I, I like very much. Um, 57 is a coupe, right? Yes. Yeah. Beautiful things. 
Um, and there was, um, what else can I think of? There was George Winterstein's McLaren M1C. That was a very nice car. That went cheap as well. What was the history on that car? Well, Winterstein had it when it was new in 64, I think it was, and he did the USRRC and then the Canon with it in 66. Okay. So it's had a good history. But uh, I, I, I just, I, the things that I notice about auctions like these are, in a way, I feel, oh, I've seen all the cars before, but I've, there, there, was a, there was a blonde lady in the front row with a notebook writing down all the prices. And I noticed that and said to one of the RM auction guys, who's she? And he said, she's the Monaco tax collector. And we, <laughs> <laughs> and we have to pay her 1% of everything we take. And there That's... she was, writing down all the numbers. So the auction company... Right after the auction company, the auction company had to write a check for, what? 1% for 55 minutes. That's 5 minutes. Wow. <laughs> 500,000 bucks, half a million bucks. So, so you that's, know. that's how you can live in Monaco and not pay tax. But I thought they didn't have tax. They don't. They don't have any income tax. There's no personal taxes. Okay. But there has to be taxes on commercial transactions to pay for that. Was... Uh, Michael uh, Michael Schumacher lives in Monaco. Do you he have does seen? indeed. Yeah, yeah. I see. He's getting back into F one now. Uh, yes, he's not doing very well. Though, no, is he? <laughs> and he's driving what a Mercedes. He's driving a Mercedes, which is really last year's brawn, isn't it? Warmed over. So, but, uh, what happened uh, last weekend on the F one race? Or no uh, he was he did quite well to begin with, um, but it was a it was a race of tire strategy. Did, did you watch it? I saw part of it. Okay. I didn't see the whole thing. So people were going through their tires like there's no tomorrow and making three and four pit stops, and unfortunately, Michael just put the wrong tires on at the wrong time, time. and went backwards. Really, I think he finished. Didn't he finish twelfth or something? Like yeah. That? He was way down there. And then, yeah. of course, Le Mans was last weekend. Le Mans was last weekend. I watched bits of that, yeah. Who won? I missed the... Oh, it was an Audi 1, 2, 3. Yeah. The, yeah. the TDIs? Yes. Okay. The, 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 per, the French Peugeots led. The French Peugeots were faster. They were faster, yeah. yeah. But and they, they broke, though, didn't they? They all broke. broke. Yeah. One after the other, they all broke. And who won in GT? GT does I, I don't G- know. Oh, well, Porsche, I know. wasn't it? Wasn't it 997? Uh, I think it was Porsche. And then I know the Celine. Believe, the Celine, Celine, Celine was in there. The won Celine won. The Did GT1 class. Okay, and the yes. GT2? Was the Porsche. Was the Porsche, yes. and then the Corvettes, they didn't make it. They the were like, Corvette got booted off, didn't it? Yeah, by the uh, Peugeot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the, yeah, the GTP car. Can so. I tell a little story about that? Sure. Okay, um, years ago, I was in France. This is in the sort of early 80s. I was racing a Porsche RSR in, um, down at uh, Paul Ricard's circuit in France. And... Uh, <clears throat> At the very first corner, I was heartily booted straight off into the boondocks by a French Alpine. And uh, I was somewhat upset about this, as you can imagine. And so at the end of the race, I went over to this guy and said, "Um, what do you think you're doing, you know, knocking me off? And he looked at me and he said, oh, monsieur, vous êtes anglais, you're English. I thought you were a German. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? I looked at, uh, I got the three-minute hand signal here. So, John, I want to thank you for uh, coming on the radio program. It it's was been real a interesting. Great pleasure, Robert. Thank and uh, thank you for thank sharing you, your uh, daughter's uh, CD with us. Alan, thanks for being here. Okay, thanks for having me. And uh, I'm going to say a, a couple of hellos here to uh, one of our special sponsors tonight. And then, since we live in a coastal area, we're very fortunate. We've got a great beach, and we've got great coastline areas, we've got great sunsets. So, if you guys are hungry and you like the beach area, our friends down at Krabby's mm-hmm. Beachwalk Bar and Grill down there, they got some really great specials. They're open from 8 in the morning to 1 a.m. at night. So they're open long. They got breakfast menus, they got full menus. And uh, on weekends, they got live bands, music playing there, and everything like that. So uh, their number is 727 210 0988. And the other thing is, that's Krabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill down there in Clearwater Beach. Sparkling Clearwater Beach. That's what the ad used to be back in the old days. Come visit Sparkling Clearwater Beach. Back or, in 1972. Yeah, back in 72. <laughs> 71 when I got here. And uh, and go see my buddy Turtle. Now, here's the deal. If you get a meal down there and you mention Turtle, or you go up and see Turtle, and you tell him that you heard this, his uh, Krabby's advertised on Nostalgic Radio and Cars, you'll get a free beer with your meal. Okay, so go ask for Turtle. Tell him you heard the name mentioned Krabby's. Beachwalk Bar and Grill on Clearwater Beach, and then you'll get a free beer with your meal. But you got you got to mention the ad. You got to mention Nostalgic Radio and Car. You heard it on our radio station. Okay, how are we doing on time there? I got a second or two. 
Um, we don't have enough time to play that. Uh, that's fine. That's okay. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. But you know, I listen to those guys, and they're real crap. You know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, just for you know what? And and June first of this year was the forty third anniversary for Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart, that album, right? So you know, nobody that, mentioned. Yeah, June sixty seven, it came out. Yeah, so nobody mentioned that on the radio station. We were going to play this song, but we'll play it again another time. Also, I want to say for all you guys that like to play golf, be sure and go to Magnolia Valley Golf Club. They're up in Newport Ritchie. See my friends up there, Pete seven two seven four six one nine five nine six. And again, you got to mention you heard these ads on Nostalgic Radio and Cars if you want to get any kind of perks. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's the deal. And, of course, I want to say a big special hello to Dr. Ronaldo Claudio. He's an oral surgeon, but he's also a big car fan. That means 10 seconds. Just oh, 10, 10 yeah. seconds. Okay. Well, anyway, his number <laughs> is 726-8500 if you need a great oral surgeon with excellent bedside manners. I mean, okay, this guy will take care of you. All right, guys. Till next week, drive safe. Break on the